From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, and Happy New Year, and welcome to Episode 178 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, (laughs) Craig Williams. Happy New Year, Craig. How was your Christmas and New Year? Uh, Happy New Year to you as well and everyone out there listening. I had a I had a pretty nice uh, holiday season there. So it was, uh, it, it's been a very much a struggle trying to escape it. So, uh, I, I tried to hold on as long as I could. I think we, uh, well, we took our tree officially down on the 5th of January. So actually, right, that's tonight as of when we're recording this, but not releasing it. But yeah, the, the tree finally got put away. Uh, it's the ornaments have been off for days and just took a little while to get it down. But, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been tough transitioning because I was right around Christmas day and Christmas Eve. I was like, I am in full holiday mode and then my my neighborhood having people take their lights down early and the the switchover of christmas music getting off the radio immediately on the 26th mm-hmm. all of that just really started chipping away at my holiday spirit so it it ended up uh you know it ended up being kind of a, a dreary uh, new year's time period but uh, my christmas was just it was really nice it was very different different like everyone's was out there i know i know it was just a very awkward way to celebrate the holidays by not really being able to celebrate at all but uh, it, at the same time too it's i used that time to to really use it as like a second thanksgiving to think about the the people in my life that are important that i miss not being able to see over over christmas and the friends that i haven't been able to see as much and you know i i tried to just think of think of everyone and think of what i do have and what i'm fortunate to have and who i can't wait to see again hopefully in in 2021 now so there there was a lot of positivity in it as as hard as as hard as it was and uh yeah i'm 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 looking forward to to now a uh, hopefully an exciting and fun year, not only in the show, but everything with everything that we do. So, yeah, yeah. I um, mine was very strange, just because my daughter ended up not being able to travel because her work has restricted them from traveling anywhere, and so I felt terrible for her. So I was going to go down and see you know Carol's family, like I did for Thanksgiving. And I thought, oh, I can't do that to her. So we, so Christmas morning, we made breakfast separately, of course. And then we, we ate breakfast together via Zoom. And then, uh, she went and walked her dog. And then at three o'clock, we just said, okay, we're going to watch a movie together. We attempted to log on to watch Wonder Woman 84 and couldn't get on for that. Neither of us could access it. So we watched, uh, um, Soul, 
And we'll talk a little more about that later in the show. And then, um, and then we then paused and we each made dinner and I made something different. I thought I'm not making anything traditional because I'd read somewhere, especially when, um, you've lost someone, uh, and you're spending your holidays alone. Don't do traditional things because it actually is worse. Mm-hmm. Um, do something, prepare something different. So I made probably the best ribeye steak I have ever made in my life. I was so happy with it. And then I made my garlic mashed potatoes and sauteed mushrooms and, and all the fixings. And then opened a bottle of Lassiter wine because I thought, hey, I'm going to live high, open a bottle of expensive wine. Expensive for me anyway. And then I, uh, and then we zoomed and had dinner together. Then we tried once again to watch, uh, Wonder Woman 84. I could get on. But she couldn't. So uh, then she said, okay, you choose a movie. So then we watched. I had one Christmas film left in my repertoire I had not really seen yet for the season. So I we watched The Man Who Invented Christmas on Hulu. And she had never seen it. And she really enjoyed it. So I, that made me happy. And uh, and that was it. And then the next day, I, I did go down to San Francisco. And because um, I serve tea and goodies and all that to the family and um, visited the cemetery. And and that was it. New Year's Eve, I was home alone. I watched uh, a couple of movies, old movies. And and then at midnight here in this neighborhood, you would have thought it was Times Square. Uh, I, I I was in bed, but I was reading. And then midnight hit, and I just hear roaring from I think the court behind us, Happy New Year. And they're a court that like people drive for miles to see their decorations and they're in the paper and on the news every year, you know, that kind of court. Yeah. And so, um, and, and they do a, a fantastic job, very heavily into Disney and Star Wars. And then they, and then they, um, then we had Rockets Red Glare. <laughs> it was now, now, Aerial fireworks are not legal in this state, but <laughs> you would not have known that. It was amazing. <laughs> so anyway, and uh, that so that was sort of New Year's Eve here. I watched the Times Square CNN thing. Gosh, that was sad. Yeah, that was we, really sad. We uh, oh my gosh, <laughs> we are. Our uh, tradition now is to watch Meet Me in St. Louis on on new year's eve so we watched that and we put it on pause to to flip over to Times square for like the last 15 minutes before the ball dropped and we were just like this is so strange to see but like as the people who were lucky enough to be there like that had to be the greatest year because of how the protocol was they could go and leave when they wanted to and go to the bathroom. They didn't have to worry about standing in one place all by themselves the entire time and, you know, having to use a bottle if they need to go to the restroom and all that nastiness. So uh, if if you were one of the lucky few people there, then you probably had one of the most memorable New Year's Eves ever <laughs> at Times yeah. Square. Yeah, yeah, at least you get to the bathroom. Yeah, But uh, I don't know. They need to bring back Kathy What's-Her-Name. Because those two guys are just boring. I find them boring. And um, I can't even remember their names. It's so boring. And I won't 
Cooper, Anderson Cooper, and oh, you watch the friend. CNN, the Anderson yeah. Cooper and um, uh, yeah, Cohen, Andy Cohen. Oh, Andy Cohen, dear lord. I mean, and they get really they, drunk though, so it's kind well, of funny. yeah, but but they're not <laughs> even funny drunks; they're boring drunks. And I don't like Anderson Cooper's giggle. And um, and they need to bring back Kathy. I mean, they just need to make amends. You know, we, we we're going to have a new president. She can start afresh next year, and they need to bring her back. <laughs> I I don't agree with her politics, but she and Anderson Cooper, at least they were a good team. <laughs> I laughed when they were together. So um, anyway, oh, well, that's my commentary. But I am looking forward to a good 2021. It's funny, my mother-in-law and I thought we saw two good omens because over their house on, was it Christmas Day, um, they had a huge, gigantic, magnificent rainbow uh, just appear over their house. And for me, now, we're in a dead of winter here. You know, it's not like it's snowing, but it's cold. And, you know, everything's dormant. And, you know, we have a lot of critters in our backyard that mm-hmm. a lot of birds hang out and squirrels frolic, much to the dismay of the neighbors, and um, but much to my amusement. And suddenly, in one of the bowl, in my Pluto topiary, I have a red dog dish that I fill with water, and I can never figure out why is it empty all the time? What's drinking out of it? And then... um a big old robin just flies down out of the sky and gets in that bowl and just starts washing himself and having a grand old time. (laughs) And I thought, it's winter. Why is there a robin here? And then I haven't seen him since. And so I thought, okay, those are both signs that um, it's going to be a good year. And if I don't end up in the hospital, it's really going to be a good year. Yes. And I'll knock on wood again. <laughs> yeah, both yeah, of us really. will be this year. Yeah. yeah. And that the world just, we get over this pandemic. Yes. Uh, so, but we are starting out the year on a sad note, though, after I've said all that. Because to share the news of the recent passing of two important people in Disney history. Uh, the first is Ron Dominguez, and we've talked about him often on the show, and Disneylanders know that Ron's family owned the land that is now a part of Adventureland and New Orleans Square. Not only was the farmland his family owned an integral part of Disneyland, but so was Ron himself. In 1955, when attending college at the University of Arizona, he applied for a summer job at Disneyland because he thought it would be something different. So Ron was hired as a ticket taker at the main gate. And at the end of the summer, when Ron was getting ready to leave, his boss, who was the director of operations, Eugene Doc Lemon, said, Ron, why don't you stick around and get in on the ground floor of this place? And Ron's parents said, what can you lose? Try it and see what happens. What happened was that Ron spent a 49-year career moving up through the ranks from ticket taker to the executive vice president for Walt Disney Attractions on the West Coast. During that time, he learned how to operate all the attractions at Disneyland, portrayed Davy Crockett in the park, and was always quick to give credit to the team he worked with. And he was hard-pressed to describe his own accomplishments. The first time Ron met Walt Disney was when he was an operator and working lead on the mine train through Nature's Wonderland in April 1956. 
He had a brief conversation with him. And Ron said when you saw Walt in the park, you could tell if his mind was clicking. You knew when to approach him or when not to approach him. You could tell when he was in a creative mode, trying to think how to expand Disneyland. Ron's first significant encounter with Walt was when he was a new supervisor on Main Street, USA. And the omnibus, omnibus had been brought on that early summer. And Ron thought it was too large for the street, with the buildings being 5-8 scale, and the trees were smaller back then. The omnibus had been brought backstage for work on its sound system, and Walt walked up and said, Hi, Ron, how are you? What do you think of the omnibus? Being an honest man, Ron said, well, it seems a little big for the street. And Walt responded, well, I think it looks damn good. (laughs) Ron said that Walt converted him real quick. (laughs) Now, before his retirement in 1994, Ron was heavily involved in promoting the second gate idea to the city of Anaheim and with the cleanup and development of the streets surrounding the park. And and if you've seen photos of what that looked like prior to today, you know, Ron did a good job. And Ron will be remembered as always being concerned about guest value. And that when they walked out of the park at the end of their day, guests could say, boy, we had a good time. And that safety, courtesy, and show were always foremost in his mind, and he cared for the welfare of guests and of cast members. Ron Dominguez will be forever remembered as Mr. Disneyland, and he was inducted as a Disney legend in 2000. So during your next visit to Disneyland, be sure to check out Ron's window on Main Street, USA, above the Market House that reads Orange Grove property management will care for your property as if it were our own ron dominguez owner and look for the canary island date palm that is nestled between the jungle cruise and indiana jones the palm was originally presented as a wedding gift to ron's grandparents in 1895 and planted in 1896 and ron's mother asked that it be preserved when the family sold their 10 acres of land to walt disney Ron Dominguez's impact on Disneyland cannot be measured, and he should be remembered as one of those who dedicated his life to making Walt's dream a reality. The second is Disney photographer René Bardot. You may not know his name, but you know his work, because he took what are probably the two most well-known photographs of Walt Disney. Rene was born and raised in Tuscan, Arizona, and he started college at the University of Arizona. But when the Korean War broke out, he enlisted in the Navy. It was in the Navy that his career in photography began as he became a petty officer with a specialty as aviation photographer's mate. After the war, he returned to the University of Arizona and finished his degree in marketing. His high school photography teacher knew the chief photographer at the Los Angeles Herald-Examiner newspaper. So the 25-year-old Bardot went to Los Angeles to apply for a summer job for 1959, but the position had just been filled. However, the photographer sent Bardot to see Charlie Nichols, who was then Disneyland's chief photographer. Bardot had never heard about Disneyland 
and knew nothing about the place, but he needed a job. After a one-minute interview, Nichols hired him. That must have been... I can't imagine what was asked, that it only <laughs> took one minute. Definitely a, uh, a thorough interview at a minute. You well, know? It was to the point. <laughs> so, Well, Bardot must have made an, an amazing impression on Mr. Nichols. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, Bardot worked mostly in the darkroom during his first summer, since the publicity photos were processed at Disneyland until they switched to color photos, and it was more cost-effective to send them out to a lab for processing. So, one day he went out with a camera in hand to Frontierland to shoot the mule ride. There, he first met Walt Disney in person, who shook his hand and welcomed him to the park. Walt had a firm grip and a twinkle in his eye, Bardot remembered. His first assignment that summer was to take publicity photos of the opening of the new attractions for Tomorrowland, especially the monorail, with Walt Disney and the Nixon family. And we all know that photo, because that photo is still being used today. As the years passed, Bardot spent less time in a darkroom and more time in the park. He would receive three or four assignments a day, photographing celebrities or new rides or fireworks, When he did not have an official assignment, he would walk through Disneyland shooting guests, workers, parades, and attractions, and all those moments recorded in newspapers, magazines, souvenir guides, and advertising. And after Charlie Nichols retired in 1968, Bardot was promoted to chief photographer. Bardot was responsible for one of the most beloved and iconic photos of all to Disneyland, now entitled Footsteps. It was what Bardot referred to as a grab shot, a photographer's term where something unplanned happens and there is only seconds to react to a cap- to capture it on film. On an early Saturday morning in 1964, before Disneyland opened to the public, Bardot and Charlie Nichols were wandering the empty Disneyland with cameras slung around their necks as they were returning from an early morning photo shoot. At the same time, they both spotted Walt inspecting the premises as he often did. He was walking through the arched gateway of Sleeping Beauty Castle. Walt, hands shoved in his pockets, was in mid-stride, head turned to his right, dwarfed by the castle looming over him. Both Bardot and Nichols grabbed for the shot, but it was Bardot's that has become the one that is most beloved by Disney fans today. And Walt said he always hated that photo because it showed Disneyland empty and he always liked photos of Disneyland with people in it. I understand that, but the rest of us out there are grateful for that photo because it is, it's truly stunning. Uh, It is. All of his work that I've seen is, is stunning. And that's, that's one of those ones I was kind of embarrassed when uh, the notice of his passing went out because I I just never knew his name and it's it's a shame because of everything that he did uh, it's so so important mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I always wonder in that photo what was Walt thinking because he could see that they that Bardot captured him mid-thought yeah you know so now, Bardot was also responsible for the final professional photo taken of Walt Disney at Disneyland. As he recalled, it was at the end of August 1966, and Walt had been shooting a commercial for Kodak. 
Walt was in front of Sleeping Beauty Castle, sitting in the front seat of Disneyland Fire Department Engine Number One vehicle with Mickey Mouse. Near the end of the shoot, Bardot and Nichols were called to take some photos. Nichols shot in black and white and Bardot in color, and Bardot recalled the story. There was a little story of when I was shooting that particular picture. It was a shot on a roll of flex, and there are 12 pictures on a roll. I had shot 11 pictures of all the different angles, watching for his smile, watching to make sure Mickey was looking the right way, making sure the spires weren't hanging out of Mickey's ears. Anyway, I had shot 11 pictures, and I said, thank you, Walt, that's it. He asked me if I was sure, and I told him I was. He then told me that at the studio, we treat film like paper clips. You shoot, shoot, shoot all the film you need, because if it's not in the can, you'll never have it. So he asked me to shoot one more. So I shot one more, and he said, that's fine, thank you, Renee, and he walked away. Walt must have been counting those shots, because <laughs> how did he know that there was one more left? I don't know. Anyway, those multiple shots also explain why you might see occasional variations of this photo, especially in the position of Mickey's upraised hand. So Bardot retired in 1998, and in March 1999, he received a window on Disneyland's Main Street above the photography store, which reads, Kingdom Photo Services, Rene Bardot, Photographer and Archivist. And the reason for the Archivist designation is that Bardot said that although the photos he took were used for publicity purposes, Walt told him that the top priority was for the historical record of Disneyland. So, so you're a photographer, um, Craig. So, I mean, what are your, you know, what are your impressions of Renee's work? I it's what took me back by it is kind of what I, I already said. I just didn't realize. I never put a name to the shots. Like I, I guess I just didn't even ever really bother paying attention to the window uh, that his his name is on either and so i you know i when the post came out that someone posted about it and confirmed that he did pass away and there was like eight photos all in a row of the different shots that he made it was like i knew every single one of them yeah and that's Mm -hmm. it it's a testament to his work and it's um that he is that good and that's why these photos are still around to this day and you know i i only hope that you know our friends that that we had on hit on the podcast here be back in 2020 around christmas time uh graham and becky and charlie and charlie i i hope that they can work on a a book next time that's that's all of all of these vintage photos even even more of the vintage photos from uh that that haven't been out there before to really start giving an even bigger light to them because Mm -hmm. um it's just it's it's fascinating it truly is fascinating be wonderful if they published a book of renee bardot's photos yeah i would i would love it they prepared one for him for his retirement and gave it to his family. Oh, see, then the they've got a somewhere they probably kept a record of all the photos that they used and the mm-hmm. the style sheet that they used mm-hmm. for it. So it, it's got to be there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. Yeah. 
So those of us who enjoy Disneyland and stories about Walt Disney, which is everyone listening to this show, we're grateful to Renee for sharing his talents to preserve the legacy of Walt and his park. And all of us at the Diz offer our sincere condolences and grateful thanks to both the Dominguez and Bardot families. So for the first show of last year, we started our celebration of the 65th anniversary of Disneyland by taking a look back at the history of Snow White's scary adventures. (laughs) This is sort of the anniversary that never happened, as it turned out, since the park never opened for its anniversary. And now Snow White's scary adventures is reimagined as Snow White's Enchanted Wish. (laughs) We'll have to update that segment at some point. Um, (laughs) This year, we start off our celebration of Walt Disney World's 50th anniversary with a look at an attraction that is still taking guests for a ride at Disneyland and is fondly remembered at Walt Disney World, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. So our motto for this episode is Toady Acceleratio Semper Absurda, which and that is not a spell from Harry Potter. That means a speeding toad is always absurd, which appears on Mr. Toad's coat of arms. So, Our story of Mr. Toad's Wild Ride begins with the premiere of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in 1937 at the Carthay Circle Theater. Rather than being Disney's folly, as many predicted, it was received with great acclaim. Walt Disney received an honorary Oscar for his work, and the continuation of his studio was assured. Soon after Snow White's release, Walt was approached by animators James Badrero and Campbell Grant about adapting Kenneth Graham's 1908 children's book, The Wind in the Willows, into a film. The story, which centered on a host of anthropomorphized, oh boy, you know, that, that word sounds good in my head. Um, <laughs> anthropomorphized animals, including Mr. Toad, could only be brought to life through animation. Walt objected, saying the idea was corny, but he acquired the rights in June 1938. By 1941, the storyboards for Wind in the Willows had been completed. It was planned to be a budget film like Dumbo but it would employ many of the animators currently finishing up on Bambi. By the middle of the summer, more than 30 minutes of the film had been animated. Then the United States entered World War II after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Walt Disney's studio was taken over by the military and tasked with producing propaganda films for the U.S. government, and the studio focused on package films as a way to cut costs due to the overseas film market being cut off and many of Walt's animators being drafted into military service. Package films were several different short films presented together, often united by a common theme or a framed story. Films like the 1944's The Three Caballeros and 1948's The Melody Time are good examples. When production restarted in 1945, animators finished off whatever footage they'd created for Wind in the Willows and decided to release it as a package, paired with another short film, an animated version of Washington Irving's 1820 Legend of Sleeping Hollow, introducing the fearsome Headless Horseman. Mr. Toad's portion of the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad 
tells the story of the well-meaning but eccentric amphibian J. Thaddeus Toad Esquire, an upper-crust aristocrat. Mr. Toad is maniacally attracted to whatever the current fad might be, and he'll bankrupt himself out of the majestic Toad Hall to get it. Whilst he's known to zoom across the English countryside on his horse and buggy, lately Toad is all abuzz about the newest craze sweeping society, the horseless carriage. And one look at the brand new sputtering, guzzling, rumbling motor car and Toad is struck by motor mania and offers to trade the deed of Toad Hall for a car of his own. The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad was released in 1949 as Disney's 11th animated feature film. It was also the last of Walt Disney's war-era package films, because they would return to producing full-length animated features the following year, with 1950's Cinderella. Just six years after the release of The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, Disneyland opened in Anaheim, California. Out of the park's original four realms... Fantasyland was the one that brought the magical stories of Walt Disney to life through a very special medium, dark rides. When Disneyland opened on July 17, 1955, Fantasyland was home to three dark ride attractions, Peter Pan's Flight, Snow White's Adventures, and Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Disneyland was not the first to use dark rides to tell stories. Amusement parks had been using this medium to tell stories since the late 1800s. But the dark rides in Fantasyland were definitive for this type of attraction. Brilliant artistic rides through backlit backdrops, glowing scenes populated by simple mannequins, and delicately recreated settings from Walt Disney's beloved stories. Walt wanted guests' experience in Fantasyland to be a dream come true for everyone who is young at heart. The Fantasyland Dark Rides received a touch of magic from Claude Coates' magic touch with color. The attractions are called Dark Rides because of their extensive use of dark light and make specially painted scenes glow with an eerie luminescence. Coates had given beautiful moods of color to all the backgrounds of Disney's animated classic films, and Walt asked him to give this same sense of mood and emotion to the Fantasyland attractions. The attractions were given the Coates touch of fluorescent colors that lifted them far beyond anything ever achieved in the scenic medium. By 1955, Walt Disney had already released Pinocchio, Bambi, Cinderella, and Alice in Wonderland. So it's clear that Mr. Toad, from the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, was chosen intentionally, and not simply because of a lack of worthwhile properties. It was chosen because Mr. Toad's Wild Ride was originally planned to be a roller coaster ride, with cars following a downhill track towards obstacles such as parked cars that would move out of the way at the last second. But it was later tamed down to be less threatening because Walt was concerned small children and older adults wouldn't ride a too thrilling white knuckle toad ride. Uh, that's, of course, not a concern today. Um, the Merrily song lyrics from the film were both the inspiration and the definition of the 1955 version of Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. 
Rather than retelling the plot of the film, the scenes illustrate Mr. Toad's motor mania, with guests playing the role of Mr. Toad behind the wheel of his runaway motor car. The driver's frantic turning of the steering wheel was fun, but had no effect on the progress of the motor car as it slammed over bumpy surfaces, around tight turns, and through bumping doors and into obstacles. Imagineer Bill Martin began working on the Disneyland Dark Rides in 1954, and in an interview recalled, Viewing the film was part of the design process. I made the track layout to start with, but we went through storyboards galore. Since the point was to convert Walt's cartoon films to rides in Fantasyland, those dark rides were developed from the original 4x8 storyboards and concept sketches made for the animated films. Then, as Ken Anderson and Claude Coates started designing sets and interiors, I made modifications to work with their ideas. We talked the gags, and some were better than others, of course. I remember the meeting when we thought of the train-coming-at-you idea. That was a catch-on gag. The last effect at the end of the ride that sends you to hell. That idea of going through the devil's mouth, through the jaws of hell, was okay with Walt at the time, too. Now, whilst the show buildings were being installed at the park, the Toad and Peter Pan attractions were temporarily assembled on a soundstage at the Walt Disney Studio in Burbank. And studio artists Ken Anderson and Claude Coates defined the scenes to be included in the attraction and did much of the black light painting on the plywood flats. Ken was an experienced set designer and an art director for many of the Disney animated films. Claude, along with John Hench and Mary Blair, was responsible for the color styling of the Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad film. Together, they created the the memorable Fantasyland attraction loading area murals and the interiors of the attractions that transferred the magic of the films into real-life experiences. Mr. Toad's ride system, including the vehicle chassis, was an in-stock item from Arrow Development, and Bill Martin recalled working on the track layout. All I had to work with initially was the radius of the rail. The minimum turning radius was four feet on that ride, which is very fast. We had the bumping doors opening between scenes, and initially only some of their swings were automatic. They were closed as the car approached, and it looked like you were going to hit them, and when the ride first opened, sometimes you actually did. I didn't really know about the gags and interior scenes when I first laid out the track. We knew we wanted the ride to last a minute and a half, and that was also determined in the floor space available, and that helped set the timing and spacing of the bumping doors, and then Claude and Ken worked it out from there. The Mr. Toad attraction space was extremely restricted. It shared space with the Peter Pan attraction, which took up the long side of the show building, and Mr. Toad used the end of the building, which is why the attraction is so tight. As changes to the scenes were made and gags added, Bill Martin had to make changes to the track layout to fit in these changes. Bob Maddy created the special effects for the attraction, like the balancing barrels in the warehouse scene from small sketches. The designers would create mock-ups and play with them a bit, and Bob would modify them so they'd work. The design 
layout, and mechanics of the attractions were all worked on simultaneously, with most of the work being completed in just a few months. When we talk about the history of the early years of Disneyland, it always amazes me how quickly they came up with a concept, put their ideas together, and then launched an attraction. Yeah, that it does not happen today. Uh, it's you know, it's far from that quick of a process, and you know that's that's why we wait sometimes close to ten years for <laughs> lands to come to fruition when there's just all these all these different elements that have to go into making it now. Because once they usually start construction, it, it can all roll along pretty quickly, unless it's very very intricate, but. Uh, still, not 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 as quickly as back then. That's no. just so fast. Yeah, it's amazing. And and they were working on all of the um, Fantasyland attractions as well as Disneyland at the same time. That's what's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> the good old days. Yeah. The, the original Mr. Toad's Wild Ride was designed to last one minute and 38 seconds and to accommodate nearly 700 guests per hour. There were 12 motor cars with nine on the line entering Toad Hall every 11 seconds and three held in reserve. Bob Gurr once said, I often tell ride operations people down there not to touch the equipment on Mr. Toad's ride. They're the only original parts left in Disneyland. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. The cars are named after characters from the film. One each for Mr. Toad, McBadger, Molly, and Ratty, with two each for Toadie, Cyril, Winky, and Weasel. The cars were built by Arrow Development from Bruce Bushman's concept drawings with 200 pounds of fiberglass and sheet metal, and they were some of the first equipment delivered for the park. All the motor cars tilt backwards slightly. This angle and their twisted fenders gives them their crazy appearance and allows a small guide wheel in front to follow a single T-rail installed along the floor of the ride corridor. Each vehicle has a one-quarter horsepower electric motor, drawing power from the rail beneath its wheels. This same rail, sometimes threading the center of the dark passage, sometimes veering from side to side, guides Toad's motor car through the twists and turns of the wild ride. The original entrance of Mr. Toad's Wild Ride and the other Fantasyland attractions had the look of medieval jousting pavilions that appeared to be assembled with lances, shields, and colorful canvas against the fitted stones of the castle bat- battlements. When the coupon books were introduced, Mr. Toad was a D ticket and would later become a C ticket attraction. So let's go back to 1955 and take a wild ride with Mr. Toad. The boarding area mural depicts multiple versions of Mr. Toad in his motor car as he careens in dangerous angles, plummets from Toad Hall into the countryside, from the railroad tracks into the flaming recesses of hell. All the various tiny toads are grinning as they clutch their steering wheels with their long pointy feet flailing in the air. We then board a replica of a 1900s-era one-seater roadster. We crash through the front doors of Toad Hall to the far-left mural. 
Um, Once inside the confines of the lavishly detailed mansion, we approach a large stained glass bay window before our car performs a sudden U-turn and heads instead toward a forced perspective mural of an open living parlor, where two miniature toad-shaped suits of armor supported by pedestals, one on either side of the mural, swing down their halberds. Upon swerving into the opposite direction, we roll under a pointed Tudor arch and into a small subroom where a third miniature suit of armor brings down its mace. We then veer to the left, crash through the paneled wall, and find ourselves in total darkness. Swerving through the black night, we encounter a large mirror reflecting our vehicle's headlights, giving the illusion of an oncoming collision with another automobile as the honk of a motor car's horn is heard. Our car then swings out of the way before passing under a natural archway and advancing toward a mural depicting the rustic cottage of Ratty the Water Rat along the moonlit riverbank, as well as a fully sculpted boat docked in front. Upon swinging around another bend, we approach a three-dimensional roadway leading off into a mural of a twisted intersection at the center of a rural hamlet. Whilst signs labeled with nonsensical places, place names such as Worcestershire and Nottoshire add to our sense of confusion. We then swerve into a narrow village street where road signs fixed to buildings and lampposts read, Turn back, do not enter, one way, and other such warnings. Despite these, we have no choice but to continue down the long straightaway, eventually reaching the headlights of oncoming vehicle in the darkness beyond the stretch and swerve out of the way to avoid it. As a police officer with a club blows his whistle and siren sound, our car performs a U-turn and heads down a dilapidated wooden pier, flanked to the right by old bollards and a large ocean freighter. Our car then advances over a series of bumps emulating the rough surface of unsafe boards, and a mural depicting London across from the harbor under a foggy night sky can be seen beyond the edge of the wharf. Just before we approach the end of the pier, our vehicle swings around and rams through the doors of a dockside warehouse and now races between long, towering rows of crates and kegs stocked with dynamite, blasting powder, and other dangerous contents. At the end of the corridor is a forced perspective mural of an exit door marked with a sign reading, This Way Out, next to which is a tall stack of three-dimensional kegs. As we approach the false exit, the stack of barrels topple down, blocking the way out and forcing our motor car to instead turn toward a solid brick wall before slamming through it. We now find ourselves back in the English countryside, swerving rapidly around stunted trees, some of them anthropomorphic, with startled faces and branched arms raised up in self-defense. We dart briefly toward the police officers, blowing their whistles, and the mural of a dirt roadway leading off into the distance. After swinging past a signal box and a ringing crossbuck, we catch a glimpse of a mural of a precarious winding path scaling the side of a cliff before racing by a sleepy railroad engineer and breaking through a crossing gate. 
We then enter the arched stone maw of RR Tunnel Number 13, run over a series of simulated railroad ties, hear the roar of an oncoming steam locomotive, see the front headlight of the approaching engine overhead in the darkness, and finally collide directly into it amid loud crashing sounds. The darkness then gives way to a menacing demonic face with a gaping mouth, the jaws of hell. As we pass under the demon's sharp teeth, the word welcome written in flames greets us into the depths of the underworld, where they find ourselves swerving around red-hot stalagmites topped with miniature horned devils who laugh maniacally and wield pitchforks. Several devils holding signs signifying redemption then direct us toward the ride's final set of doors, which takes us back out into the queue area and the outside world. Well, that was quite a ride. Yeah, it was a it was a fun <laughs> ride. It's exciting. It's got me sweating, but uh, <laughs> not 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 too overwhelming. I think I think I'll recover one day. Yeah, yeah. Now I remember the 1961 version. I think that lasted until the 80s, because in 1961, Mister Toad's Wild Ride received an assortment of new gags and scene details and technical improvements. Amongst these were additional character flats that included Molly McBadger and a human butler in Toad Hall, as well as Ratty in front of one of the painted storefronts of the narrow village street, and a handful of new police officers, including one on a motorcycle, new crash doors designed to look like a construction barricade located in the village street, and multiple breakaway flats of stacked crates and kegs in the warehouse, improved crash doors, and fully sculpted devils and red rock in the hell scene replaced the original flats. Otherwise, the track plan remained pretty much the same until the opening of New Fantasyland in 1983. I remember when I was little riding this, and I was squeezed into one of the motor cars with my wife, my my mother, and um, one of my aunts. And I was right in the middle, <laughs> and um, I remember coming up on that train scene, and I closed my eyes and like ducked my head and put my hands over my head because I was sure we were going to crash into something. Yeah. It, and then I, I opened my eyes and we were in hell. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, a good effect. It's a great effect. Um, it, you know, I, it, it, I will not lie that when I get in a dark room and I don't see well and I hear a, a sound, it still throws me off, even though I know I'm in a theme park and, and I'm safe. It doesn't matter what attraction is. If it does that effect, there is that slight second where, where it catches me. So I, I don't blame you for, for being afraid when, when you were younger, for forgetting yeah. that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a, a fun attraction. Very different from today's mm-hmm. attraction. Uh, the attraction saw its greatest changes with the opening of a new Fantasyland. Uh, the loading area and the ride exterior were enlarged and redesigned to resemble Toad Hall from the film, with images of Toad in abundance on the facade. Additional space was added to expand the ride and lengthen the track so that the ending became wilder and more like the film. Many design elements and gags are recycled from the 1971 Magic Kingdom version of the attraction that we'll explore in a moment. But first, let's take a spin on this 1983 Disneyland version. 
We enter a recreation of Toad Hall, passing by artistic works commemorating characters from The Wind in the Willows. A large mural shows the adventures of Toad in his motor car, foreshadowing various scenes in the ride. A mural has a hidden reference to Walt Disney and his love for trains in the form of a train named W.E.D. Rail. We then hop aboard our motor car and begin our journey by crashing into a library where McBadger is seen teetering atop a ladder with a stack of books. We then crash through the fireplace where, our, where fiber optic effects simulate the scattering of embers on the floor. Narrowly avoiding a falling suit of armor, our car breaks through a set of doors to find the interior hallway of Toad Hall in disarray as weasels swing from chandeliers. We then enter the dining room where Molly is eating at a dinner table and gets knocked aside. Upon leaving Toad Hall, we travel through the countryside, passing Raddy's house, aggravating policemen and terrifying a farmer and his sheep. Making a right turn, we then head for the docks and get the impression that our car will plunge into the river, but quickly make a sharp turn in a different direction and enter a warehouse full of barrels and crates containing explosives. As we crash through a brick wall in the warehouse's contents explode in a burst of bright flashing lights. We then head out into the streets of London, narrowly avoiding a collision with a delivery truck, and enter Winky's pub, where Mr. Winky the bartender holds two beer mugs. He ducks down, leaving the mugs spinning in the air. Our motor car then enters the town square, where we wreak further havoc on the citizens. A working fountain featuring Toad and Cyril Proudbottom stands in the center of the town. Behind the statue is one of Lady Justice peeking out from under her blindfold. Next, we enter a juryless courtroom where we are proclaimed guilty by a judge based on the film's prosecutor for the crown. Our car then enters what is presumed to be a dark prison cell before abruptly turning right and landing on railroad tracks. The vehicle bounces along the tracks in the dark before colliding head-on with an oncoming train. We then arrive at the ride's final scene, a tongue-in-cheek depiction of hell, not inspired by any scene in the film or book. The entire room is heated, and the scenery features small devils who bounce up and down. We also see a demon who resembles the judge from the courtroom scene. Near the end of the scene, a towering green dragon emerges and attempts to burn the riders to a crisp. A glowing light is seen in the back of its throat, and choking, coughing noises are heard whilst our motor car speeds away. Granted a reprieve, we eventually escape to the ride's loading and unloading area, where we disembark. And that, of course, is the attraction that we we know of today no at Disneyland. Love. You know, and love. So, is Mr. Toad a, a must-do for you when you visit Disneyland, Craig? It absolutely is. I I don't know how it couldn't be for most people. I I, I still have that excitement uh, since you know I, I grew up and I was able to go on the Walt Disney World version a couple of times uh, back in the nineties. I I feel like I have that that longing for it every single time I go out west. That I I, I can't not go on Mister Toads, even if I'm only there for one day. 
that's one of my attractions that I, I have to hit just because it's my, my only way of truly experiencing it. And, you know, it's, it's one of those attractions that first thing in the morning you walk on, last thing at night you walk on, and pretty much every other point of the day, it's like a 20 minute wait. And that's, that's about it. So I really, I, I always make sure that I, I make time for Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. And it's just fun. You know, I know it does, it, it's quick and it throws you around a little bit, but it's, it's still just fun. And I, I, I think it's, it's a good encapsulation of a dark ride. There's nothing against stuff like uh, Alice in Wonderland and probably what uh, Snow White will look like after it's finished with its its re-enhancements, but uh, there's, there's something special about an old-fashioned dark ride and i feel like mr toads is still a a good example of it even even pinocchio still has that but as they re-enhance some of these older ones and add more magic to it it doesn't make them any lesser because of it it makes them amazing but it takes away some of the magic of simplicity of these attractions so i i i love mr toad i i have a million great things to say about it but i will uh i i won't go on and on <laughs> mm-hmm. no i agree with you absolutely this is a must do for me as well and um yeah and i i think it i think it's close even though they've completely redone it you're right it's still it still is the one that i think is closest to the spirit mm-hmm. of those original 1955 dark rides because the others have been enhanced so much yeah and um, and it'll be interesting to see if if someday they do turn their attention to Mister Toad and add some of the um, you know enhancements similar to what they've done with uh, Alice in Wonderland, yeah, I, and Peter Pan to it, that attraction. It would be a lot more difficult for Mister Toad, in my opinion. There's, I feel like there's ways to make subtle enhancements uh, closer to you know closer what what they've done with like peter pan but um it's i don't feel unless they completely change it up like what they're they're doing with snow white i feel like it's it's a lot harder to get in there and kind of add those little uh, moments of enhancement something like alice was was born for that in my opinion mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah because alice uh was sort of attempting to tell a linear story from the film and that those enhancements helped do that but uh the interesting thing is you know when we've talked about the dark rides at disneyland on previous episodes one of the things was that you know originally imagineers conceived the idea that we were the characters and guests complained after they got off the attractions where was snow white where was peter pan where was alice in wonderland they never said that about the mr toad attraction people accepted that they were that they were riding that they that they were mr toto they were just on a you know on a toad-like adventure yeah Yeah. and nobody missed mr toad seeing mr toad i think it would be a mistake if they decided to add him to this attraction i agree i agree with that yeah Now, when planning the Magic Kingdom's Fantasyland at Walt Disney World, Imagineers had considered creating an attraction based on the other half of the animated double feature, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. This would have had riders chased down by the frightening Headless Horseman. The other Fantasyland dark rides would have been inspired by the films Mary Poppins and Sleeping Beauty. 
When plans for the Magic Kingdom's Fantasylands were changed from designing new dark ride attractions to recreating the ones from Disneyland that had already proven to be popular, the Imagineers did not simply copy Disneyland's versions. With the gift of more space and larger budgets, they gave Mr. Toad a grander and wilder ride. When the new Magic Kingdom opened in October 1971, it included Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, but this expanded version of the classic dark ride had a few major changes from the original Disneyland version, the most significant being two tracks. Two loading areas each dispatched motor cars into the attractions, with each separate track experiencing entirely different scenes, meeting up at specific points through the ride. This huge dark ride was designed in an intentionally cartoon style that closely matched the multiplane camera work of many early Walt Disney animated films. Rolly Crump designed the Magic Kingdom version of Mr. Toad and recalled that the attraction was so insanely popular at Disneyland that Dick Nunes, who was director, who was vice president of operations at the time, told Rolly that he wanted two Mr. Toad rides side by side, exactly the same, to make sure it had high capacity. And Rolly thought, why the hell would I do that for? So he told Dick that he'd think about it for a while and he'd come up with something even better. So that night, he came up with what was eventually put into the Magic Kingdom. Two Mr. Toad rides in the same building that were completely different, with different track layouts and different scenes. He thought it was a great idea to throw people off. So let's go back to 1971 and meet this Mr. Toad. Boarding the ride via the right track, you'll need to hold on tight once the car starts because the race is on. Immediately, our car whips around the corner into the stately cut-out exterior of Toad Hall and passes through a grand wallpapered entrance hall. Ahead is a proud stone bust of Mr. Toad himself. After this brief glimpse of Toad's ode to himself, our motor car accelerates toward a flickering fireplace and bursts right through it into the manor's stately library. As Toad's friends duck behind desks, suits of armor topple toward us. The car chugs ahead, driving headfirst into a towering bookshelf and breaking out of the manor into a barnyard full of sheep, cows, and pigs. Seemingly with no path forward, we plunge into a pile of hay, bursting out to find ourselves nose-to-nose with a fuming bull standing guard over the farm's cows. We seem to have taken a farmer by surprise as he falls backwards, yanking a rope that sends a hay bale falling right towards us. We then drive through the wooden doors of a barn only to unsettle a chicken coop. And in the darkness, dozens of chickens circle around, clucking as they fly. Racing out of the barnyard, neon glowing lights catch our eye, reading danger, road construction, do not enter, one way. And what's that ahead? A car heading right towards us. Cleverly, this oncoming car is from the left track, our first encounter with guests from that side of the queue. At the last second, the motor car pulls off to the right and into the charming central plaza of a quaint English town. This large central plaza is set where the two tracks converge, circling around a central stone fountain, past police officers whistling frantically, and past spinning lopsided directional signs pointing towards nowhere. 
A car makes a quick turn out of the central plaza and into a courtroom where an angry sheriff sends us to the jail with some no-good weasels already locked up. Escaping from the jail cell, the car enters into a shootout between the policemen and the weasels. In a race to escape, we burst through a railroad crossing gate and turn into a dark tunnel only to encounter a train heading right for us. The darkness gives away to reveal that we're in hell. As painted flames illuminate gnarled, jagged red rocks, tiny red demons holding pitchforks laugh and bounce, their eyes shining green. Then Satan himself rises from behind a molten rock, pitchfork in hand. Ahead, doors swing open as our cars makes a final advance to the loading dock. Now let's take the left track and see how that's different from the right track. So here our car enters Toad Hall, and just as before, we chug through the entrance hall to view that wonderful stone bust of Toad. And up ahead of us, we may spot some riders from the other loading area bursting through the fireplace and into the library. But on the left track, we pivot in front of the statue and head further into the manor, into a completely different room, into an impressive trophy room full of exotic cartoon animals mounted between elegant tapestries, then into the kitchen, causing quite a fuss and breaking more than just a few plates. Breaking out of the manor, we drive ahead into the woods and pass by a gypsy camp with a dozen dancers and performers. Their ornate wooden wagon is dead ahead, but not for long. Our wild motor cars break right through their wagon, only to find a one-way street beyond, with a car heading right toward us. At the last second, the car zooms left and enters into the beautiful central plaza of the little tiny hamlet. Now we mingle with riders from the right track. Now, they break off from the plaza and turn right into the courthouse, but we go into Winky's Tavern that's just ahead. As the car bursts through the door, the bartender ducks out of the way, leaving his mug spinning in midair. And the jalopy jolts into the storage room behind the bar stacked high with shelves upon shelves of wooden barrels. And those weasels are hiding among the barrels waiting to give us a what for. So we rush out into the misty countryside, passing by Ratty's house. But up ahead, there's that railroad crossing. And despite the flashing lights, the car breaks right through the crossing gate and turns left right onto the railroad tracks. Our car sputters into a dark tunnel when suddenly the blinding headlight of a locomotive races towards us. And before we know what hit us, the doors split the darkness ahead and open it into, well, we all know how this ends, hell. There's steaming rocks, the laughing demons, and Satan himself. But as before... Kindness forces, a kind force shows us the exit, and our motor car presses forward and back into the loading area. Rolly Crump said, It always made me laugh when a family went on the ride, and one half went on one side, and the other half went on the other, and they didn't realize both were different. 
Did you see the chickens? What? There were no chickens. What do you mean there were no chickens? Did you see the gypsy camp? What gypsy camp? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, that that just gave him endless merriment. And, and when I was reading about all of this and researching, he said this is an attraction he was the most proud of. Was was this version of Mister Toad's Wild Ride? I I can understand that. So unfortunately, yeah. the ride just it, it, the big ride and Mister mm-hmm. Toad. Well, we're we're gonna get there. Yeah, we are getting there. Yeah. So now, Craig, this is this is one that you wrote on in your youth. So, what are your memories of this attraction? Uh, my my memories of it are very much all blurred together and so like when i watch a when i watch videos of it 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 does come back to me and i feel like i remember remember it exactly uh but you know i don't know if that's just my mind playing tricks on me but i i loved mr toad's wild ride it was it it was one of my favorites at at uh magic kingdom in terms of the the dark rides that that we did have uh to offer i i know i was more afraid of snow white than i was of mr toads which uh is it's that seems hard to believe but snow white is scary so uh, i i did really really love mr toads wild ride and and i was i was one of the sad sad people out there who was who was devastated when it was it was on the the cutting block yeah yeah i remember well, i went went on this attraction when i was a teenager and i remember when i first went to the magic kingdom teenager i i, I was impressed by its size but i i still thought that some of the disneyland versions of the attractions were better even though I still thought it was magical and I loved it. But when I rode Mr. Toad, I thought, whoa. But I didn't catch on the first time that the other side was different. Yeah. <laughs> and I found that out by accident. Because this was, you know, way before social media. And my first visit to Walt well, Disney World was unplanned. I was visiting relatives in Kentucky and my, I had an aunt and uncle that said, you know, you don't have to go back to school right away. Well, they lived in Orlando. And they said, why don't you, we're driving back. Why don't you come with us? And so my parents changed my plane tickets and I went back and they took me to Walt Disney World. Epcot was under construction. And, um, and so yeah, we went to, to the Magic Kingdom. And, uh, but yeah, it, so, you know, I didn't do any reading or anything on it. I just knew it existed and from what I'd seen on television. And um, I was amazed when I realized this is, it's like, it's like, what, what, what was that? That old, it's two, two, two mints in one, that old certs commercial. This is two attractions in one. I was blown away by that. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I feel like I have the memory of, us riding it multiple times so we could do both sides but again i don't know if that's just me making that up in my head like that of course it had both sides i know i know i rode both sides for sure but i don't know if it ever dawned on me that like oh yeah we never did it back to back to be like yes these are two different and unique sides so i i wish i could go back in time and and tell myself to pay better attention to this yes. stuff when I was a kid, and uh, you know, try to try to have stronger memories <laughs> than, than the ones that I made. 
Oh, I've wished many times I could go back in time and give myself little messages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Study harder. Pay more attention to this. <laughs> buy that. <laughs> yep. Uh, buy that. That's the biggest yes. one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride was extremely popular at both Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom. Uh, maintenance costs were minimal. The attraction could accommodate all ages, sizes, and any health conditions. The attraction was what was known as a push-button ride that could be operated by any Fantasyland attraction cast member with minimal training. However, it was a slow-loading attraction, and the effects and sets were becoming outdated. Winnie the Pooh and his friends were enjoying a huge surge of popularity, whilst guests did not remember the film inspiration for the Mr. Toad attraction, and, probably more importantly... There was no Toad merchandise being sold in the parks. On the other hand, Pooh-related merchandise was selling more than Mickey Mouse merchandise, and with the addition of an attraction, those sales would only increase. In the mid-1990s, Disney executives took a look at the show building housing Mr. Toad's Wild Ride at the Magic Kingdom and realized the double tracks meant that Mr. Toad took up more space than a typical dark ride, which meant that Mr. Toad's show building was large enough to contain a single regular-sized dark ride and a gift shop. And since Winnie the Pooh was experiencing a brand revival, the character needed a dark ride and a gift shop. On October 22, 1997, the Orlando Sentinel reported on a rumor that Mr. Toad was about to be evicted from the Magic Kingdom's Toad Hall. Their sources noted that the ride would close forever, and soon. Now, it's not uncommon for Disney theme park fans to exclaim their dismay when a change is made to an attraction or restaurant. But with Mr. Toad, Disney fans rallied with a response that outpaced their normal fervor of defending doomed attractions. The Save Toad campaign emerged the day after the Orlando Sentinel's article and would end up shipping hundreds of Save Toad t-shirts and gathering thousands of online submissions and memories. It was a hashtag-ready social media blitz before there were ever hashtags or social media, and before Disney had ever announced anything. Did you have a Save Toad t-shirt, Craig? I didn't, but I I know that I probably would have gotten one if I was a little <laughs> bit older. So I was a little bit, a little bit too young for that, but I probably would have. The Save Toad fan campaign was headed by John LaFont and later Jeff Moscott, who who urged sending letters and emails to the Walt Disney Company by the thousands. A Save the Toad webpage was launched. The site contained an electronic toad hall for fans to leave comments, as well as a mailing list for subscribers. That campaign led to demonstrations at the attraction called Toad-Ins, reminiscent of the well-known Sit-Ins of the 1960s, and they immediately got media attention. Though the protesters were overall polite, their numbers worried Disney enough to station guards around the site. The campaign led to a story in the AP Newswire, which in turn earned articles from CNN and the Washington Post, Word was circulating, and Mr. Toad earned what might be the first national media attention surrounding a soon-to-be-shuttered Disney attraction. 
Those reports led to even more supporters, but Disney remained firm on its decision to close the attraction. On September 8, 1998, more than a full year after the Orlando Sentinel first reported the rumor, Disney finally admitted that it was true. Mr. Toad would take his last wild rides, and a 1971 original dark ride would close forever in just five days. Almost 27 years after it opened in the Magic Kingdom, Mr. Toad took his last ride on September 7, 1998. The Save Toad campaign was in attendance with a final Toad Inn where members celebrated and mourned together. For generations of Magic Kingdom guests, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride was a park icon on par with Peter Pan's Flight or Snow White's Scary Adventures. <laughs> Another one gone. A classic that harkened back to the park's origins, and even further to a Walt Disney original that opened with Disneyland. The announcement that it would close in less than a week was a low blow that stunned even those who suspected its time was short. Mr. Toad's Wild Ride was an instant classic, a brilliant dark ride, and a fan favorite. However, it fell victim to the character invasion of the parks that began in the mid-90s when Michael Eisner's team quickly and inexpensively pushed marketable, merchandise-friendly characters into the parks by any means necessary, even cannibalizing classics. For example, Alien Encounter, If You Had Wings, The Enchanted Tiki Room, and The Timekeeper gave way to Lilo and Stitch, Toy Story, Aladdin and the Lion King, and Monsters, Inc. This was the, also the start of what people called the Pixarization of Disney Parks, most evident at Disneyland and Disney California Adventure, and the introduction of Disney characters into Epcot. So it's not at all surprising that the merchandising potential of Winnie the Pooh beat out Mr. Toad. What is surprising is the way Disney closed the attraction by announcing that it was closed forever within the week. This meant that many fans didn't have a chance to say goodbye, and in a pre-social media world, tens of thousands of people likely arrived to Walt Disney World for their family vacation, only to be surprised to find that Mr. Toad had gone merrily on his way forever. We all know that when an attraction is replaced with another, the Imagineers insert homages to the previous attraction in the new attraction. And this is true with Mr. Toad. The next time you take a spin on the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh, in Owl's home, look for a photograph hanging on Owl's wall of J. Thaddeus Toad handing over the deed to Toad Hall. In the same room, you can spot another photo of Pooh greeting Molly. A morbid but clever nod to Mr. Toad's Wild Ride can be found in another attraction, the statue of Mr. Toad that was prominently displayed in the entrance hall, is now serving as a tombstone in the pet cemetery at the Haunted Mansion, although our friend of the show Jim Corcus has stated that this is actually a big fig by Kevin Kidney that has been painted to look like an oxidized rusted statue. So, yeah, so I have to take photos, look at photos of both. And see if they look different. Yeah, that's. I've, I've just always assumed. I never really tried to look too closely. Yeah, Jim Corcus is um, is the only one where I've seen it stated it's the big fig. So I don't know. 
Um, but I thought it was worth mentioning since he, you know, he has so many insiders that he oh, talks yeah. to. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the Magic Kingdom's cast members' facilities has a room dubbed the J. Thaddeus Toad Memorial Room. When you were a cast member, did you wander over there and go into that room, Craig? I did not, but I wasn't ever in Magic Kingdom, so that's why. Hmm. Maybe maybe one day one of our listeners will invite us in. Now, I, if anyone <laughs> has any insight, please let us know. <laughs> yeah, we can we can raise a we can raise a toast to Mister Toad exactly. So, so yeah, this this is a much missed attraction. I think still to this day, um, in the Magic Kingdom. Yeah, it's. I mean, it. They're they have very good reasons for putting Winnie the Pooh there. I completely understand why it's there, and there's a lot of people who love it. But uh, you know, it's also it, it's a very different it's a very different park now from what it was before. And you know, once we lose Snow White for for Princess Fairy Tale Hall, then that kind of just drives another stake into everyone's hearts for losing Mr. Toads before, because now we're left with Peter Pan and then Mr. Toad and and Little Mermaid and Little Mermaid, as great as a dark ride as it is, it just it, it doesn't have that same feeling. So mm-hmm. um, it's, it's it's tough. It would be it would be great to have Mr. Toads back, but I know that's that's just as unlikely as a return to the original journey into imagination. Neither would ever happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you consider the um, Seven Dwarfs Mine Train to be a dark ride? Uh it's it's close. It's it's very close. I mean. It, I consider it more of a dark ride than a roller coaster. I'll say that mm-hmm. much. Um, it's <laughs> That's <'cause> true. <laughs> it's not much of a roller coaster, but at the same time, it does just have that one moment that makes it a little bit hard to to completely say it's a, a total dark ride. But it's it's definitely it's a nice in between. The it's, it's definitely in between a roller coaster and a dark ride. So yeah. Yeah, well, Disneyland Paris was originally meant to have a version of Mr. Toad's Wild Ride that would have been closer to the actual film with a different final scene that would have had Toad in an aeroplane. It was never built, but a Toad Hall counter service restaurant with an exterior similar to Disneyland's reimagined 1983 facade did open. Inside, there are paintings of Toad and many famous paintings like the Mona Lisa. You can also see artifacts from the Wind in the Willows and the Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. The restaurant sells British and American food since the film on which the attraction is based takes place in the Magic Kingdom. And there is both indoor and outdoor seating, although this was closed when I was there. So I didn't get a chance to look in it. Yeah, it was, it was closed when I was there too. So I feel like it's probably not open that often. Yeah, I suspect as much. When I first saw it, I thought, oh, it's an attraction because it looks so much like Disneyland's. Then yeah, a beautiful I building. I was disappointed. It is. Yeah. It's gorgeous. Oh, well. I still think that there's hope. You know, if they ever wanted to bring back Mr. Toad, they could bring it back as a roller coaster, like the original concept. I'd, I'd you know, be over, over at, you know, the Magic Kingdom. Yeah, I'd, I'd be willing to, uh, to accept that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, since that's that seems to be the direction they're going in is that kind of thing. It's just so. it's a more it's more fun. It's more exciting. It's more Disney. Uh, you know, it's all, it's all perfect. Imagine it with the if it 
if they rebuilt it as a trackless um you know, yeah, ride yeah. experience. That would be great. And that <laughs> trackless and then also trackless in a uh in a similar fashion. I know you haven't experienced runaway railway yet, but uh you know, it's not it's it's that attraction, like I believe also the the Winnie the Pooh attraction in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. While it being trackless, it utilizes the fact that sometimes ride vehicles can can swap around places like something like that would be exciting with toad that would be Mm -hmm. that's what i was thinking yeah Yeah. well fans of mr toad can still take a spin in his motor car at disneyland as mr toad continues his journeys to nowhere in particular in fantasyland and a miniature of stately toad hall can be seen on the storybook land canal boats just a few steps from mr toad's wild ride but now it's time to merrily take a ride back to this week in Disney history. Uh, here we are, the first, the first this week in Disney history for 2021. And this is obviously the time when uh, award nominations are announced <laughs> because it was filled with that. Not this so, year. Anyway, no, no, not so much this year. So. Well, okay, we start out with January 10th. On January 10th, 2013, three of Disney's animated films are nominated for an Academy Award in the same category. Which ones were nominated? And, you know, imaginary bonus points, which category? Okay, 2013. I'll say that would have been Wreck-It Ralph. Mm-hmm. Then also that would be uh, that would be Brave. Correct. What's left? Hmm. It's an obscure one. <laughs> I'm probably going to hit myself over the head with it, but I'm not. It's a remake. If that helps. Oh, it it does. Um, I was thinking this was 2014 just because it's special to Kylie and I. I, I bought her a, a Sparky after mm-hmm. after we, we saw the movie together. I thought it was t- 2014, not 13, but I'd say Frank and Weenie then. That's correct. Or the, and technically what were they? 2012. Sorry. So, so what were they and what were they nominated for? I uh, best animated. Yeah, best animated yeah. feature. And Paperman was nominated for best short film animated. And the 85th Academy Awards ceremony will be presented on February 24th. Okay, January 11th. What Disney's California Adventure opening day attraction closed on January 11th, 2002? Mm. Okay, 2002. I am gonna I'm gonna take a guess on it, but just because I feel like you would throw this one in for me because we talk about it every now and then on the show. I'm gonna say Superstar Limo. Exactly. I thought if you needed a hint, I was going to say the worst Disney attraction ever made, <laughs> or the best Drew Carey attraction ever made. Sounds Dangerous was bad. Oh, yeah. I do remember Sounds Dangerous, yeah. But I loved it. 
<laughs> but it was bad. <laughs> I thought it, the, it sounds dangerous was better than Superstar Limo. Oh, <laughs> I'll have to take your word for it since I never did it. <laughs> oh, oh, there's lots of there's lots of video online. I've I've watched it, it, but it doesn't like it entertains me. But you know, it's oh, I'm sure it was, it was different being there in person, thinking it was going to be this exciting, fun ride, and then that's what you were served. So yeah. <laughs> okay, January twelfth. One of Walt's nine old men, a core group of early animators, passed away in California just three months short of his 87th birthday on January 12th, 2000. He masterminded the designs of heroines and villainesses like Cinderella and Coella de Vil. After leaving, after leaving animation in 1961, he designed many attractions for the Disney parks as an Imagineer. What is the name of this Disney legend? I believe that would be an Imagineer that you and I talked about before we started recording tonight, <laughs> and that is Mark Davis. You're absolutely right, Mark Davis. Okay. January 13th, the first Mickey Mouse comic strip was published in the New York Mirror and other Randolph Hearst-owned newspapers throughout the country on January 13th, 1930. The strip, licensed by King Feature Syndicate, was written by Walt Disney himself, drawn by Ub Iwerks and inked by Wynn Smith. The first week or so of the strip will feature a loose adaptation of which animated Mickey Mouse short film? Hmm. I feel like we've talked about this before but it's not it's not coming to me plain crazy that's a good one to do it on yeah yeah especially with the you know with the, uh, just all the excitement of Lindbergh's um, you know flight across the Atlantic yeah. and all that so. yeah. January 14th starting on January 14th 2008 and continuing through the next 10 days Imagineers field test a wireless device at Walt Disney World. The handheld unit has the potential to inform guests in real time what the current wait time is at a specific attraction. It will also let a visitor know whether there are any fast passes left for a particular attraction and when they will be available. 60 families will be randomly chosen each day at the Magic Kingdom to participate in the program. What is the name of this device? I I I don't know. It's uh, I had not heard of this until I came across it. Disney Magic Connection. I've never heard of that. <laughs> no, no, but obviously it's a precursor to what we have today. Yeah. It's it yeah, sounded Disney interesting. Experience. And that's yeah. I was trying to think in my head like do I know what this is? But yeah. no. <laughs> no, and it wasn't that little Mickey Ruxpin doll or whatever it was no, yeah. that they had briefly. <laughs> okay, January 15th. Two new attractions opened at the Magic Kingdom on January 15th, 1975. Which attractions opened on this day? In 1975, you say? Mm-hmm. January 15th, 1975. Uh, I'm going to say Space Mountain. That's correct. And... I'm going to let you give me the other one. Oh, it's one of our old favorites. It's made its way from kingdom to kingdom. Carousel of Progress. Oh, 
I don't think I have. Have we talked about that? That they're the same day? I don't know. Hmm. Probably. (laughs) Now I know. (laughs) Okay, January 16th. A sequel to Walt Disney's live-action film, The Absent-Minded Professor, debuted on January 16th, 1963. What is the title of this film? That is uh, Son of Flubber. Mm -hmm. That's right. Starring Fred McMurray. It's directed by Robert Stevenson. And in this, Professor Ned Brainerd, played by McMurray, gets into trouble again because of his experiments with a gravity-defying substance. And the cast includes Nancy Olson as Betty Brainerd, Tommy Kirk as Biff Hawk, and the father and son team of Ed and Keenan Wynn as A.J. Allen and Alonzo Hawk. The film will be generally released January 18th. Yeah, I watched that pretty, I want to say, about in the past six months. I enjoyed it. I, I like those old films. Yeah, so do I. So. Well, you're off to a good start in the new year. Well, Craig, did you watch the two big films that were released over the holiday season, Soul and Wonder Woman 84? I watched Soul. I did not watch Wonder Woman 84 yet. I I was a huge fan of the first one, and I, I plan on watching it very soon. But I just, I had too much I was watching leading up to, to the releases on Christmas Day. And then, you know, I, I kept watching Christmas movies for a couple days after, just like I said I was going to, and then busy with work. So I, I've kind of put it off, but I, I did take time to watch, watch Soul. And I was, it's, it was a movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, you didn't care for it? It's not that I didn't care for it. I, I did not um I I thought it was very good and the animation uh, like you expect with Pixar was just magnificent mm-hmm. but I felt like the movie itself lacked a lot of soul and it lacked a lot of heart I I made this uh I I made this example on another thing that I w- I was doing but I said the for me soul is like the B-side to inside out where when mm-hmm. Peacock, a lot of people made that comparison yeah mm-hmm. and that's that's really what it was for me is that inside out was uh was a well thought out clever story that was very insightful into who we are as humans and how how we form our emotions and feelings and and really grow to be the people that we are and um it so like you have that with inside out and it was solid and it felt fresh and new. It, but then on the flip side with Soul, it took it from a different approach, different, uh, completely different in terms of uh, the delivery and, and how it was all set up. But it just felt like it was missing, missing something. It, like to me, as I was watching it, I, I was thinking like halfway through that. Like this probably felt would have been better is more of a not a short but like I feel like this could have been a really amazing hour long movie but to press it all the way to almost two hours just felt like it went a little bit on the long side just just for me and um, I I found a lot of the I, I just being frank I thought Jamie Foxx's character I felt like he was too mean in in places and then with um with 
Tina Fey's character, I felt like with 22, I just, it, that didn't attach on me too. So they both kind of, kind of graded me. And like, I, it just, it felt like a lot of the conclusions that were made in it just didn't, didn't line up with the rest of the tone of the movie. And I, I don't want to go into it more for people who haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but I, I hope everyone does enjoy it. I just, I, I was not blown away, but again, I take every Pixar movie that's released and I compare it to the last one that came out and all the ones that came before it. And, you know, if this would have been an animated movie that came out of a different studio, I'd be probably sitting here saying that like, okay, yeah, that was, that was really well done. But when it's from the studio that made inside out and from the same director, it just, it it was missing. It was missing something for me. I enjoyed it. I would say it's in my top five of Pixar films. I thought that it, um, I agree it could have been tightened up a little and 22 was hard for me to warm up to. But overall, I really enjoyed it. I I liked its message. And, uh, you know, I also tried to keep in mind, okay, there are certain aspects of a Pixar film. You know, you always expect the one-liners, and you always expect that because I think some of that detracted from the film mm-hmm. for me. And um, I'm not sure Tina Fey, I would, if I would have gone with her as the voice of 22. And I think they make reference to that almost in the film. Yeah, there's and, and there's a moment that uh, and it's not a spoiler where basically it's uh, she's shows off that she's able to choose whatever voice that she wants i shouldn't even say she because it's more of a until it's in a person it's more of a a they so Mm -hmm. uh it it could be anyone's voice including jamie fox's voice in it that's that's the one joke i'll kind of give away there with it but so yeah with with making that reference it's very strange to me that they chose tina fey again it's almost like oh well yeah you had amy poehler for inside out her her kind of uh, co-collaborator on some movies and back to a weekend update on SNL. So yeah, it's just taking the next step of that, but I don't think she was the right fit for it in my opinion. But I liked it. I love jazz. I wish there was more jazz in it. And and I've listened to the soundtrack and I've enjoyed the soundtrack. And um, yeah, there is a, there, but I, I enjoyed it more than another film I watched. I'm not going to say on the show. It was a Netflix film that I thought was going to be about jazz. And it was Chaz, and it was um, Ch- um, Ch- Chad Bozeman's last, you know, last film appearance. And he was great, but whoa, that one took me down. <laughs> that film. I, I liked it, but I thought, I thought this was going to be about jazz. There wasn't enough jazz in that film for me but um anyway no but i overall i enjoyed soul and but i i decided okay i have to go back and watch inside out and then soul because i want to watch soul again yeah and i thought i have to do it as like a double bill when i have the time yeah i i will agree with you i could have used more jazz in there as well too i i and that's not to take away from the the score that uh trent reznor and atticus ross 
created. I think that music is spectacular. I love every time that they score a movie. Uh, some of some of the movies that they have scored, like Social Network, is in my repertoire of music I listen to while I'm working because it just it has this right tone and and mood to it that just that works so well with me. But uh, you know, for for also a jazz centric movie. I I want to hear the jazz. I I I want to be like just bombarded with both of them. But uh, it was you know I I I will watch it again and I will still own it. It's just for me it's it's not in my my top list of uh, Pixar movies. But I also think it was just I watched a lot of really good stuff over mm-hmm. the holiday period, and I know it was old, but I became enthralled with the Queen's Gambit on netflix i haven't watched that yet oh michael i have to watch you that's what everybody's saying i've got to watch it yeah that's i watched i finished that i think the day that i watched soul or the day before and so it was just still that was complete different subjects but how good that was was still so fresh in my mind that i think i was also bringing that to everything i was watching so i could have watched citizen kane and probably found a couple extra problems with that that i've never <laughs> seen before after after finishing queen's gambit well i yeah i will definitely watch that that's on my list so Good. there's a there's a few things i'm looking forward to on disney plus in january um i have never seen the wolverine so i'm looking forward to watching that so and then there's marvel studios legends that I, I sounds good. I think it'll help me understand sort of more of the superheroes that are coming up. Yes. I think yeah. in their films and television series. Of course, everybody's looking forward to WandaVision. Yes, we are. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't have totally have my head wrapped around what it is, but I'm looking forward to it. Pixar popcorn, which I guess are short shorts. Yes. The Pixar's making. Yeah, that and was one this of the ones they just revealed uh, during yeah. the presentation a while back. So I'll be interested in seeing what they yeah. have with it. Yeah. And then um, for me, we've talked about this series a lot, and I'm glad they're bringing it back. Is it Dinosaurs? All four seasons of it. Yeah, this this was, um, this was a, a nice surprise because it was on Hulu for the longest time. And I think I even... I even read an interview with Brian Henson saying like, yeah, it's, I'm glad they're moving it over to Disney plus with more stuff. It was doing just fine on Hulu, but uh, so <laughs> apparently they were happy with where it was before, but I think, I think it'll definitely get a, a bigger audience on, on Disney plus. And while, while there is some darkness to that series, I think overall it's, it's a, a nice addition to that that entire lineup mm-hmm. and uh it'll i can't wait to watch through it all again i was surprised they, they seem to have slowed down in moving things out of the vault yes they yeah. have uh really really um slowed down with that and i i still don't quite understand the reason why besides maybe uh they're just looking at analytics and people aren't watching a lot of the classics like they would maybe want in terms of of adding more down the line which that's why i i still say it if if we want to see more i know it sounds silly but uh, if you have the bandwidth just play put play on anything that's old 
<laughs> when you're <laughs> you're going to bed. Turn the TV off, leave Disney Plus on, play those Mickey Mouse Club episodes or the classic movies and make it seem like you're watching them. So that way they'll say, okay, we need to add more because that's, yeah. that's the only thing I can put my, my finger on with it is that if they're not adding more, it's because no one's watching it. So they're sitting there saying, well, why, why waste space for that when we could find something else to fill that gap? Yeah, that must be. Anyway, so is there anything else you're looking forward to on Disney Plus? Hi, you, a WandaVision. Just, yeah. <laughs> that's all we need. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, I referred to several books, articles, and websites during my research for this episode. Um, books included It's Kind of a Cute Story by Rolly Crump, and then also the E-Ticket Magazine. There are a couple of issues there I took a look at. Some articles and websites. The Wild History Behind Mr. Toad's Wild Ride at Walt Disney World by Nathan Schmidt for AllEars.net. And Disney fans fought to save this wild ride and lost. Here's why it was shut down forever by Theme Park Tourist. And Mr. Toad's Wild Ride at Magic Kingdom by Jim Corcus. Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me on random shows on the Diz Unplugged podcast network, uh, but always on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. And then you can email me anytime, Craig at WDWinfo.com. What about you, Michael? You can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com, Twitter at MBowling121, Facebook, MichaelBowling connecting with Walt, Instagram, I'm MichaelBowlingTheDiz, and you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at ConnectingWalt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link. Craig includes in our show notes or at disunplug.com and look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and Amazon Podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. And thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. <laughs> <laughs>